upstate area, moved to Spartanburg back uh, in July. Uh, and before that, I was up in the Pittsburgh area for about four years. I started an RUF up there. Um, and uh, funny thing, funny connection, the, I was partnered with a church plant. They actually started a church and started RUF at the same time. I wasn't doing both, don't, don't worry. Uh, there was another church planner, but the church was Resurrection. So it's great to be at another Resurrection. And um, one, of, one of my great takeaways from my time there that I want to carry into my time at Wofford and see happen again and again is actually seeing, I saw this one couple in particular, they're kind of like my badge of honor from my time there, um, that when I met them, they were not Christians. They wanted nothing to do with the Lord, nothing to do with the church, and I just patiently pursued them, got coffee with them, invited them to Bible studies, got them connected with other Christians, and they became Christians. They joined our ministry team eventually, and now they are back there in Indiana at Resurrection Presbyterian in Indiana, serving with the youth group, being a lively part of that church. That's the vision of RUF. That's, that's why I'm doing RUF and not some other campus ministry is because we are sent out by the church. We're the arm of the church on campus, and our goal is to then build up that arm to make it stronger, and I hope that we'll see Wofford students come here uh, and be a part of this church and be a part of churches all over the upstate and uh, in the world. Um, and so uh, it's, it's definitely a different context coming back here to the south, uh, and, but one of the things I've enjoyed the most, uh, I spent a lot more time on small group ministry there, but I've really got to direct more time to the preaching of the word, uh, and in particular this semester we've been in Exodus, and it was a little ambitious of a, a project to, to choose that. Uh, I was kind of wondering how students would respond, but I, the Lord really put it on my heart. Uh, and it, it particularly in the past couple of weeks, I have just had so many encouraging moments that after, after the sermon, after reading a long text like we're about to read today, um, I've had many students come up to me wanting to talk more. I, I had a student come uh, that was hanging out with me during our RUF lunch time that we have every week, and somebody there was asking, hey, what's been like the best part of your week so far? Which is this very quiet, very shy student that I often have a hard time getting anything out of, and she said, large group was my favorite thing this week. Um, so uh, there's really great things happening, and I'm, I'm happy this morning to kind of bring you into the Exodus series. Um, I, I know you guys heard a little while ago from Tom Hart on Exodus, uh, the call of Moses, where we're going to go to the next episode where Moses is uh, and Aaron are going to confront Pharaoh for the first time. So if you want to turn there in, uh, in, in, in the handout or in your own Bibles, I will read that and uh, pray for us, and we'll hear what the Lord has to say to us through this text. So again, Exodus chapter 5, and then we're going to read a bit, chapter 6 as well. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. 
Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that are made in the past, you shall still impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. And so the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus Pharaoh says, Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. And so the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. And the taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And then the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. And they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I remembered my covenant Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm 
and with acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Actually, I'm going to stop there. Let's pray. Please join me. Father, this is a a long passage we just read, but it's a beautiful reminder that you're a God who is not silent, that you have spoken to us again and again. And just as you met Moses and spoke to him here in what we have just read, you are meeting with us this morning and speaking to us through your word. And we pray you might work powerfully through your word this morning that you might Break through and soften hearts that are hard, that you might open eyes and ears that are closed, that you might help us see more of your beauty and the beauty of what you have done for us in Christ and the work you are continuing to do in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when's the last time, the last big experience you had of something just going completely wrong, just you completely falling flat on your face. And what was your response to that? I could get up here and tell lots of stories of my failures, but one of the most memorable failures that I, is just a fun little story I keep going back to happened back when I was in college. I was an English major and I was taking a class on C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and at the time, like, I thought, this, this is, like, going to be the easiest English class I've ever taken. I've already read C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Like, I know these guys. This is going to be fun. It's going to be fine, and it, and it was a great class at first, but then we had our first test, and it was just this short paper that we had to write on Tolkien, and I, you know, I wrote what I thought was a pretty good essay on the theme of free will and, and determinism in Tolkien's writings, and I'm like, you know, I... Worst case scenario, I'm going to get an A minus. Like, I, I was very confident about it. And after turning it in, I come back in the next day and see this paper in front of me with red ink all over it. And I'm in complete shock because I got an F. I totally failed the paper. And, and I mean, a B plus was already, like, that was a disappointment for me. This was just inconceivable. But as I looked at this paper, uh, the reason this had happened uh, was I hadn't carefully followed the MLA citation. I thought, oh, this is a test. It's not a big deal. Like, I could just say Lord of the Rings, page, whatever, and the professor should understand what I was talking about. But no, this professor, he was a stickler, and he was like, if you don't cite your sources in the right MLA way, that's a failing offense immediately. Well, what was my response to that? It wasn't immediately to accept it, to learn it, uh, to face it, face it head on. No, the, the first thing I did was I ran over to the office of one of my other English professors who I was close to that you know, was a little bit more lax when it came to things like that. And I was scheming of like, how, how do I resolve this? How do I fight back at this professor and get my grade changed? 
But I know other times in my life, other, other failures that happen, I have another response that maybe some of you have. Flight. You know, I've hosted RUF events. This happened a lot when I was trying to get things going with the RUF up in Pennsylvania, where I'm like hoping, you know, maybe 60 people will be here. Like we've really tried to advertise and, and make this a big deal. And then like 15 people show up. Or, or I've prepared so much for a test or an interview and I failed it or didn't get the job. And in those moments, I just wanted to retreat. I just wanted to go into a Netflix marathon and just escape from the world. I think it's really difficult for us to just face failure and rejection head on. Like we, we want immediately to either fight it or run from it. The last thing we want to do is accept this is a normal part of life. And yet suffering, rejection, failure are a normal part of the Christian life. And how we, our posture towards that reality is really important. Um, one of the most common questions that my counselor will ask me is, what is your relationship to failure? I think the Lord is our counselor this morning asking us the same question because the answer is so important, it changes everything about our life, and he wants to reorient our relationship to failure. Uh, he wants to give us a glimpse into the way he uses this reality for our good and his glory. And specifically, this God who works through failure, he wants us to see, first, this, the frustration of false expectations, but then secondly, the hope of his promises. So first, let's think about the frustration of false expectations we see here. It, it's almost kind of funny just how fast everything falls apart here. Again, this is, this is, Moses is going straight from being in the wilderness, encountering God, getting this amazing call from God to go free the people of Israel. And, he, he, you know, they're, they're going up to Pharaoh and thinking this is going to be easy. And then just immediately in verse 1, uh, well, a little bit further down, um, they're rejected. And it, it's appear, it appears that Moses and Aaron, they expected this to be really easy. I mean, they, they didn't even, if you look back at verse 1, like, they don't even really introduce themselves or anything. They're just like, let my people go, that they may hold to me a feast in the wilderness. It's almost, a, I kind of imagine them walking in there, slow motion, with like, we are the champions, just blasting in the background. And then that music just suddenly just stops. And we get that response from Pharaoh. Who is the Lord? Why should I listen to him? Like, I, I have no idea who you're talking about. I'm not going to do what you're asking. And so they try to like clarify it. They try to back down a little bit. But Pharaoh is just getting more and more annoyed and making things, and, he, and they end up making things worse for the Israelites, and then that gets back to them, and, and all of this, this role of failure ends at the end of the chapter with Moses' despairing speech to the Lord. 
why have you done evil to this people? Why, why do you send me at all? You have not delivered your people at all. Does Moses' speech there at the end of chapter 5, does that, does that feel familiar? Have you ever felt like you are doing exactly what the Lord told you to do? You're, you're coming to church regularly. You're, you're reading the word. You're, you're praying. You're, you're trying to get involved with the work of the church. You're trying to love people that are hard to love. You're trying not to live this completely self-centered life. And then it just feels like you're hitting a wall again and again in life. Maybe you're trying to be incredibly hardworking and faithful at your job. And, and, and you get passed over for a promotion or you even get fired. I, I mean, just this week, um, I, I was ready at the very beginning. Like, I'm ready to dive into the semester, like dive into this week and just meet up with a ton of students, do as much work for the Lord as I can. And we start off Monday. Uh, my youngest is throwing up all over the place and has pneumonia. And then, and then Kim, my wife, gets it, and then I'm taking care of them, and then I come home from large group on Tuesday night, and, uh, and my oldest, Amelia, is just as sick as well. And then on Wednesday, I've got it too, don't worry. Uh, I've, I've been good now, the sickness has left our house. But it, it just threw a wrench in my entire week, and I, I was frustrated with the Lord. I, I'm, I'm like, Lord, I'm trying to serve you, I am trying to do what you have sent me to do, and I'm just falling flat on my face. But what are you tempted to do or think when you're in that spot? What does it feel like? I think the consistent thing is that we're often just so surprised by it. We're never like, oh, yeah, well, of course I'm experiencing suffering and rejection and failure. And maybe that's because, like, we actually have a really high view of God and expect a lot from him, and we, we get his promises that are so big and powerful. Maybe we have some good expectations, but I think often, even if we believe in those promises, we have a, a microwave version expectation of them. We think, ah, we should just be able to pop these in the microwave, hit 30 seconds, and boom, go, I've, I've got it. I've got what God promised me. And yet, just like the Israelites and Moses, this false expectation we have, it not only messes up things for us, but it starts to turn into frustration at the Lord. I think when we're in the middle of these moments, it's so easy for God, rather than being our friend and our helper, to become our enemy. Notice... The Israelites, they, they don't really blame Pharaoh, the, the one who's actually wants to use and abuse them. They, they blame Moses, the Lord's servant, and then Moses brings this blame to the Lord. Don't, don't we do the same thing? We don't come to terms with the fact that we live in a sinful, broken world and that we have deceitful hearts and that there's even 
demonic forces around us running the world at work, causing chaos, causing suffering. Rather, we're frustrated with God. And we want to go back into the arms of the very things that have been enslaving us. But is this the right response? Uh, Has the Lord just played a cruel trick on Moses and Israelites? You'd think it would have been nice if he had warned them that this would happen. I mean, isn't it reasonable for them to be this upset? Well, if we flip back, if you have a Bible um, and you want to look at back at chapter 3 and 4, uh, it's interesting what we find there. There in verse 19 of chapter 3, the Lord told Moses, But know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders I will do in it. And, I, and after that, he will let you go. Then again in chapter 4, the Lord says, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let his people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I will say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The Lord warned Moses this was going to happen. This should not have been a surprise at all. They just completely tuned out how hard he told them it was going to be. He did not promise the slow motion walk with we are the champions the very first time they confronted Pharaoh. He did promise very clearly, unequivocally, he would finally deliver God's people from Egypt. But he also promised it would not be easy. And so the frustration that Moses and the people of Israel are experiencing is is not the Lord's fault. It's tied to their selective hearing and their consequent false expectations about how God is at work saving his people. I think we all have a hidden presupposition about the Christian life. If I obey God, he has to bless me. If I'm thoughtful and prayerful and biblical about things, if I seek all the right counsel, then it should go well. I I should be happy. I should be successful. My family should be healthy. But then when we find ourselves not experiencing that blessing... We go to God complaining about how hard it is to find him. But the question is, were we just selective in our hearing as well? And I think if you've been a Christian for a while, you you probably know the answer. Think of what Jesus says in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, the the pinnacle of that book, the, the centerpiece. If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then Peter, he says it so bluntly in in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised 
at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And there's so many passages I could go through all over scriptures, all over the New Testament. The Lord's not trying to slip one past us. The Christian life is this beautiful, fulfilling thing that's meant to lead to flourishing. But that doesn't mean it's easy. It's quite hard. But I think we actually make ourselves we make that process so much harder for us by buying into a false narrative that it's going to be easy. And so like Moses and the people of Israel, we, we often have to learn it the hard way. Uh, I, even now, maybe you're, you're hearing me and you're like, like, why is this guy up here being such an Eeyore? <laughs> I I, I, yeah, there's going to be challenges, but if like I just really do things right, I can make things easy. I can, I can, I can like hop over that cross just a little bit. Maybe I have to experience like a tiny bit of it, but I, I don't really have to experience the full-blown thing. If I raise my kids well and I do all the right things, like they're going to be successful. Like nothing bad's going to happen to them. It's all going to be great. If I can just be involved in all the right things and be awesome at all of them. Work, parenting, faith, my marriage, all this, like, it's just, this is going to be such, I'm going to hit that point where just everything is going to be amazing. I, I think it's almost as if we're responding to Pharaoh and we're like, yeah, we'll do it. I, I will make the bricks without straw. Like, I can make this happen. But I promise you, if you continue in that path, you're going to be blindsided one day. Perhaps the biggest judgment God could have on you is to just let you do that. But one day, uh, you may find that your, your spouse says to you, I, I'm done with your workaholicism. You may find that your kids grow up and they want nothing to do with you. You, you may just find in general that, that everything that you thought was going to fulfill you has left you empty. There's this really good documentary on Netflix called Stutz. Um, that it's the, the actor Jonah Hill. It's about his counselor. He had such a great experience with his counselor that he, like, he just wanted to share sort of his wisdom, his perspectives with the world. And uh, there's one point in the documentary where they're discuss discussing one of Stutz's tools. It's called the snapshot, and it's it's... Basically, it's this metaphor or tool that refers to this perfect experience that we're all trying to actualize but doesn't exist. And as they're talking about that, Hill confesses to Stutz, Before I met you, I was this wildly insecure kid. And I thought that success and rewards will absolve me of the pain of life. And so I worked hard to get the snapshot. And because of my privilege and luck, I got to go into that snapshot relatively early. But when it didn't cure any of that stuff, it made me beyond depressed. When God lets you fail, when he lets you, when he lets your life fall apart, 
maybe consider he's actually trying to save you from something much worse than that experience. It may, there's a much deeper despair and frustration that comes from getting everything you want and realizing it's empty than the frustration that comes from taking up your cross and following Jesus. Well, for all that Moses did wrong, uh, there's one thing that he did right. Where does he go immediately? He brought his frustrations, his confusion to the Lord. And and in the response to his honest prayer, we, we see the hope here and how the Lord shows mercy and renews him in the hope of his promises. And that's our second point, the hope of God's promises. And go back there. I just want to read a little bit of chapter 6. And so God speaks to Moses. And he says to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan the land in which they lived as sojourners. I have heard the groaning of my, the people of Israel, and I have remembered my covenant. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord, your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. God's not phased at all. He's not, this isn't throwing off his plans at all. He he knows he's going to deliver him. He's going to fulfill those promises he made to Abraham 400 years ago. And I think that's the first place we have to go to in the looking for comfort when we're in the midst of failure and rejection. God's not surprised. Things haven't been thrown Of course, because you lost that job, because your kid's doing bad in school, because you failed that test. Rather, he planned for these frustrating moments to redirect your heart back to him. What what really stuck out to me, and I was trying to re-emphasize as I read that passage again, is all the eyes in the Lord's speech there. It's as if the Lord is saying to Moses, stop thinking about yourself so much and all your shortcomings and all this situation. I am the Lord. Think about me and what I am doing in the world and what I have promised and how I am redeeming you and your people. And that's the most important thing for us to get this morning. That we might turn our eyes from ourselves And turn them to the Lord that we might more deeply know who he is and what he has promised. And if suffering and rejection are what it takes to break us to the point that we're actually hungering for that. I would argue it is worth it. God transforms us through suffering. And this isn't because he loves to see us suffer. But it's because he knows this is what's going to produce beauty an eternal life. And so God let Moses and Aaron fall flat on their faces, the people of Israel, so that they, they might know better who he was.
I mean, think about it. What, what if the Lord had just let what Moses and Aaron happened, wanted to happen happen? That, that they had just gone in, one fell swoop, boom, they deliver God's people, they leave, we cut out like a bunch of chapters from the book of Exodus. What, what would have been going on in their hearts? What would have been going on in the hearts of the people of Israel? They would have become the new like celebrity pastors of the ancient Near East. They would have built some giant mega church and like, it, like everyone would have just been like, these, these guys are awesome. And that wouldn't have been good for Israel and it wouldn't have been good for Moses and Aaron. Have you ever considered the reason God is letting you fall on your face, is throwing wrenches into the projects of, of your life, it is to bring you out of this obsession with yourself, the, the narcissism that the, the, the world keeps wanting to pull us into, and into the amazing life that's found in having our life revolve around him. It really is enslaving to be obsessed with yourself. To, to make everything revolve around your happiness, your success, your strength. And there's so much freedom and joy in letting it revolve around him. In the words of one of my favorite hymns that we sing in RUF, if we give him back the life we owe, we find in the ocean depths of his love and his purpose in the world, our life is richer and fuller. But again, it often takes something hard to get us there. And one great part about working in RUF is to see this happen to students again and again, to see them fail that test, to see them have something really hard happen in their family and to be there in that moment to point them to the hope of God's promises and to show them how God is not surprised by this but has planned this and, and wants to use this for their good. Uh, and there's lots of stories you hear in RUF that are just really powerful to il illustrate this. And one that's always stuck with me uh, came from Brian Habig at downtown Prez, his ministry. Um, I'm not sure which school this was at, but one school he was doing RUF at, there was a student who was just like the star student. Like he was an incredible athlete. He was well-rounded just in so many ways, really involved with campus ministry, like led all these Bible studies. But one day in the middle of college, he is diagnosed with cancer. And eventually he goes through chemo and in that process, he just loses everything. Like, like, not only does he lose his health, but, like, friends stop visiting him, abandon him. And one night, he's in the hospital, and he's just trying to get from his bed to the bathroom. And he just collapses on the ground. His body is so weak, he can't even make it to there. And he said it was in that moment, lying on the floor, unable to even get to the toilet, that he finally understood grace. He wasn't leading Bible study. He wasn't killing it at whatever sport he was involved in. He hadn't even felt like praying for months. He was doing nothing 
nothing for Jesus. And yet it was in that moment that he realized that God loved him just the same as he was lying there on the floor, totally helpless, unable to do anything for God. And so to this day, he, he will tell you that, that he, he praises God, he thanks God for that cancer that, that totally interrupted his college experience. That's such a crazy way to respond to suffering. Like, can you imagine yourself responding that way? I, I think it would be so easy to respond with anger at God, anger at those friends that abandoned you. It's so easy to slide in despair. And I think this story, this student's experience is, is radiating with, with a greater hope than just this student's character, but the hope of the gospel. Because where do we see the, these threads of suffering and hope come together more beautifully than in the story of Jesus Christ? Humanly speaking, at, at the end of his life, just look at it neutrally, it, it seems like a failure. Especially when you think about what Jesus had before. Like, he was becoming the celebrity pastor. He had... Crowds and crowds of people following him around. He could have planted hundreds of churches. There were people literally breaking through ceilings just to like get a moment with him. And yet at the end of his life, he's no longer the influencer of influencers. Everyone has unfollowed him. He, and he hangs on the cross, getting the death that the worst criminals received. Failure, rejection, suffering at the highest level. And yet, it was in that failure that the door to victory over the slavery of sin and death was opened up to us. It was there on the cross that he defeated the Pharaoh of this age, the devil, and set us free from his grip. It was the moment of, of Jesus lying there on the cross as that student was lying on the ground that was his moment of greatest power. And yet it, it was our complaints, it was our frustration at false expectations that sent him there. But it didn't bother him. He was unfazed. He did it willingly so that we might be forgiven and freed from those false expectations and experience the resurrection hope of the gospel found in him. Let me close us in prayer. Father, wherever we are this morning, I, I pray you might take this word and, and bury it in our hearts and cause it to bear fruit. Whether we're right in the middle of a season of suffering, I pray this might be source of comfort. I pray that, uh, that you might help us to turn our eyes away from ourselves into you, that the, that the very suffering we are experiencing, we would see uh, your love and your grace in it. Um, and I pray if we're not in that season, that we'd praise you for that, and you would prepare our hearts to, to not be surprised the next time we, we do find ourselves in a moment of everything falling apart. But we might run to you 
like Moses ran to you and know even if we don't have the right attitude that you are ready to meet us there with your mercy and grace. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And the table that is set before us this morning is a picture of what Oliver just said. Uh, this is a, a table that, that represents uh, Jesus' uh, greatest hour of suffering that was also the greatest hour of hope for us and his greatest hour of strength and power.